The following podcast is not suitable for all audiences. We go into great detail with every case that we cover and do our best to bring viewers even deeper into the stories by utilizing disturbing audio and sound effects. Trigger warnings from the stories we cover may include violence, rape, murder, and offenses against children. This podcast is not for everyone. You have been warned. 40 years ago, on October 31st, 1981, the streets of New York were filling with people ready to start their Halloween fun. The trick-or-treaters were out, the bars were filling with people in costume, and the veil between the living and dead was growing thinner and thinner. But while all the Halloween chaos was unfolding around New York, a man named Ronald Sisman and his girlfriend Elizabeth Platzman had different plans. Instead of spending the night out on the town, they decided to stay in, have a few glasses of wine, maybe have a little photo shoot, and just enjoy each other's company. But at some point in the night, the couple hears a knock on the front door. Thinking it was probably just trick-or-treaters, they ignore it, but after a while, the knocks turn into loud bangs. When Ronald opened the door, he didn't find trick-or-treaters wanting candy. Instead, he opened his door to something evil. That evil would force its way into the apartment, beat him and his girlfriend, and eventually shoot and kill them. The Halloween murders that occurred that night would leave the New York Police Department with more questions than answers. But one thing they never suspected was that the murders were rumored to be a part of a satanic cult and possibly linked to one of America's most notorious killers. This is the story of the Halloween cult killing, the murder of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman. I'm Courtney Shannon, and you're listening to Murder in America. have passed since Halloween of 1981, but this night in particular is one that the people of New York City will surely remember forever. It all started on a cold October night in New York with a girl named Elizabeth Platzman, otherwise known as Liz. Liz was a beautiful and vibrant 20-year-old woman who had a lot going for her. She grew up in Long Island and came from a very wealthy family. Her parents owned a pre-Civil War home in Long Island, which was actually a landmark that many people from around the country would come and tour. Liz spent her younger years playing with her younger sister, guiding the tours around her prestigious home, and just enjoying the simplicity of life. Liz and her younger sister had all the opportunities in the world at their fingertips. Their parents enrolled them in one of New York's most prestigious private schools named Friends Academy. And you had to have a lot of money to attend this school, and money wasn't an issue for the Platzman family. 
They wanted to do everything in their power to make sure Liz had a good life. Elizabeth was well-liked among her peers, and they often described her as kind and sensitive. She loved the arts and theater, and she worked really hard in school. When she graduated from Friends Academy in 1979, she decided to continue her education at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Elizabeth was excited for this new adventure. She had grown up in New York and she was about to start a new chapter at a university nearly four hours away from her hometown. And she had big dreams for herself, but little did she know she would never make it through her college years. Elizabeth's first few years of college went by smoothly. She decided to double major in economics and art history. She worked at her school's art museum and she was even on the honor roll. Elizabeth was very involved at her school and an extremely hard worker. She was even set to be the next editor-in-chief of her school's literary magazine. Elizabeth made a lot of friends in college, but she wasn't much of a partier. When she wasn't studying, she would often spend time with her friends, or she would brush up on her photography skills. Throughout college, she really fell in love with photography and had a specific interest in photographing nature. In the fall of 1981, Elizabeth would start her junior year at Smith College, but this year was a little more exciting than the others because she had met a boy over the summer. Her cousin, Hilary Sklar, was married to a man who worked for a company called Postergraphs, Inc. It was a photography company owned by a man named Ronald Sisman. Ronald was 39 years old with a successful business, and Hilary, Elizabeth's cousin, thought that the two would get along well, despite the 20-year age difference. When Elizabeth and Ronald met for the first time, the two really hit it off. Ronald was an older man, well-established, and had a career that Elizabeth admired. She herself was a photographer, and not only did she look up to Ronald, she liked him. The only problem was that he lived in Greenwich Village, New York, which was about a three and a half hour drive from Smith College in Northampton. But despite the long distance, the two had managed to hang out several times within the one month of knowing each other. It was now October, and as the leaves changed colors and the streets filled with Halloween decorations, Elizabeth was starting to plan her Halloween night. She had the option of spending it with her college friends, but Ronald was far too old for the college scene. So instead, he invited her to spend the night with him in his apartment in New York. He told her that they could spend the night drinking wine and that he could even do a little photo shoot with her at his apartment. And Elizabeth liked that idea. She wasn't much of a partier after all, and a romantic Halloween sounded like a much better option. So she decided that she would spend Halloween night with Ronald, and then the next day she would take a train to Long Island and spend the rest of the weekend with her family. As the holiday approached, Elizabeth posted a note on her school's ride board saying that she needed transportation to Manhattan on Halloween. She ended up finding a ride with a group of other students who were also headed to New York City. And when Halloween came around, Elizabeth packed up her bags for the weekend and made her way to Greenwich Village. As for what happens next, we aren't really sure. The New York Police Department isn't really sure either. The only people that really know what happened that night are Ronald, Elizabeth, and the evil force that they would later encounter. But we're gonna walk you through what law enforcement believes happened that night. 
Hey guys, it's Colin here. I have to stop the podcast for a second and tell you guys about an amazing streaming service called Shudder. Now, I'm assuming a lot of you guys out there watch horror movies and you love horror movies. I'm a huge horror movie fanatic myself, and AMC's Shudder is literally the place to go for horror movies online. Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits. I love Shudder because you can stream on any of your favorite devices, including the iPhone, the iPad, Apple TV, the Xbox. You can stream anywhere and at any time. I've recently become obsessed with the show Creep Show. It's on AMC Shudder. I used to watch so many horror movies and I love Tales from the Crypt and all of that. And Creep Show on Shudder is truly an amazing, amazing series if you like anthology horror. That's my recommendation to you guys. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must-see titles like Vicious Fun, The Mortuary Collection, and PG Psycho Gorman. Great movie. Plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit Creepshow TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. To try Shudder free for 30 days, that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R, go to Shudder.com and use promo code STATE. Once again, to try Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R, free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code STATE. Trust me, guys, it's like horror movie Netflix, all horror TV documentaries, everything. It's an amazing service. Anyways, let's get back to today's eerie episode. Thursday on Halloween, Elizabeth and a boy from her school make the three and a half hour drive to New York City. Along the drive, Elizabeth tells the boy that she would be staying with a relative that night. Now, we aren't sure if she intended on spending the night with Ronald or with her cousin Hillary, who lived nearby. But regardless, the friend drops her off in Greenwich Village at Ronald's apartment. Elizabeth gets out of the car, walks up to the apartment's third story, and knocks on Ronald's door. The two spend the next few hours drinking wine and enjoying their Halloween indoors, away from the chaos of New York City. Now, at some point in the night, the two hear a knock on Ronald's door. Thinking it was most likely trick-or-treaters, they ignore it, but a few moments later, they hear it again. The knocks continue, and by this time, they aren't just regular knocks. Someone is When he opens the door, law enforcement assumes that whoever was standing outside forces their way in. And this is the part where the story is kind of unclear. We don't know the conversations that Ronald and the perpetrator or perpetrators had that night. But what we do know is that whoever it was started to beat Ronald and Elizabeth, and they were vicious. Witnesses would later come forward and say that there was blood splattered all over the walls of the apartment. At some point, the intruder or intruders started to burglarize the place. They tore through all of Ronald's belongings, throwing stuff all over the ground, and they even ripped into the furniture, almost like they were in search of something in specific. Before leaving the Greenwich Village apartment, the intruder walks over to Ronald and shoots him in the back of the head with a 25 caliber pistol. Then they walk over to Elizabeth and shoot her in the back of the head as well. Both of them were killed instantly, execution style, at the hands of someone evil. The intruder then goes through each of their belongings and steals their IDs, 
which is a point that will come up later in our story. But for the remainder of that Halloween night, Ronald and Elizabeth's bodies would sit in the apartment while all of the neighbors and trick-or-treaters go on with their Halloween fun, completely unaware that a murderer is walking among the streets of New York City. Elizabeth was supposed to take a train to her parents' house in Long Island the next morning, but she never showed up. Her parents didn't jump to the worst-case scenario just yet. It was Halloween, and they probably figured that Elizabeth had just overslept after a fun night with her friends. But Friday came and went, and by Saturday morning, when Elizabeth had still not called or shown up, her mom started to get worried. Plus, Elizabeth and her mother were very close, and there was no way that she wouldn't have called if there were a change of plans. After attempting to contact Elizabeth a few more times, her mother decided to call Smith College and see if they knew where her daughter was. The university would look for Elizabeth around campus, but they too couldn't find Elizabeth's her. Elizabeth's family would continue to worry all day until they got the call that's every parent's worst nightmare. Their little girl had been found dead, murdered, and no one had any idea why. I wasn't able to find exactly how their bodies were discovered, but I do know that at around 7.40 p.m. that Saturday, one of Ronald's neighbors happened upon their bodies. The neighbor said that the scene was gory and that blood covered the entire apartment. When detectives first arrived on scene, they noticed that there was no forced entry, leading them to believe that Ronald could have known his killer. But it was also Halloween, a night where people often open their doors to strangers. So it's possible that Ronald thought it was trick-or-treaters, opened the door, and they immediately forced their way in. Detectives also stated that the apartment was so ransacked that they couldn't even walk on the floor without stepping on something. And like we mentioned earlier, the evidence at the scene led investigators to believe that the intruders were looking for something specific. The furniture had been ripped open and torn apart, and most intruders don't do that in a typical home invasion. They usually just take what they can find and make their way out. When investigators looked at the bodies, it almost looked like the two had been bludgeoned to death. There was blood everywhere, and their faces were badly bruised from the beating that they had endured. Investigators also noticed that both of their IDs were missing and that the intruders had stolen Ronald's 25 caliber pistol. It's possible that they found the gun in the home after breaking in and used it to kill them. A small amount of cocaine was found in the apartment, but there wasn't a lot of evidence for investigators to work with. So the next step into finding who did this was to really get to know their victims. And detectives would spend the next few months digging into Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman's past. Hey guys, I have to tell you about this really fun game that Colin and I have been playing on our phones for a while. It's called June's Journey, and you can download it for free on your mobile device. This game honestly gets you involved and gets you hooked immediately. Seriously, I love iPhone games, and once I started playing June's Journey, I could not put down my phone. I was playing it until my phone was dying. Who doesn't love a good mystery? In the game June's Journey, you play as June Parker, an amateur sleuth trying to solve the mystery behind her own sister's mysterious death. Since this is a true crime podcast, you know that Colin and I love crime-related games. And seriously, once you start playing June's Journey, you will be hooked like we are. 
June's Journey is such a compelling game. It's super engaging. Once I started playing, I was hooked, and now I cannot stop. I've made it pretty far into the mystery and the storyline, but it's the story itself that really has me compelled to keep playing. It's so well written and so well produced. I've caught myself at like, you know, midnight telling myself I gotta stop playing, just go to bed, but I can't. Like, I literally can't sleep. The gameplay is fluid, it's gorgeously designed, and it's a super compelling experience. So if you want to join the 3 million users like us that are determined to solve the mystery, download June's Journey for free today on Apple App Store or Google Play. Elizabeth, there wasn't much for detectives to find. She was, for all intents and purposes, an innocent girl. She grew up in a good home, went to a prestigious university, made good grades, and never got into any trouble. Ronald, however, had a bit more dirt on his name. Neighbors of Ronald said that they suspected he was a drug dealer by the amount of clientele he had coming by his apartment. And they were right. Ronald was one of the many cocaine dealers around New York City at the time. According to an article written by Sylvia Moreno and Richard Firstman, detectives talked to Elizabeth's employer at Smith College, and he told investigators that Elizabeth was well aware of Ronald's drug associations, saying, quote, she was a bit naive, kind of an innocent. She knew Sisman supposedly had something to do with trafficking cocaine. I don't think she knew what the ramifications were. I think he was a fairly big dealer in the city. She mentioned that to me a couple of times. But I think she probably was swept away with the idea that here she was associating with this drug dealer. I think she looked up to him in some respect." End quote. Now that is just the word of her employer. We clearly don't know Elizabeth and everything she knew, but we do believe that she did know about Ronald's drug dealing. But given her record, it doesn't seem probable that she looked up to him because of it. We think Elizabeth just really liked Ronald. He was older, successful, and had a career she was interested in. And in the end, she was naive. No one would ever suspect that the boy you just started talking to would ever put your life in danger. But news around town was spreading quickly that the murders were most likely associated with drugs and detectives now have a bigger pool of possible suspects to look into, including everyone in New York City that Ronald sold to. But that would be a very difficult task, to say the least. People are usually very discreet when dealing drugs, and there typically isn't a long money trail to follow. And it seemed like detectives had more questions at this point than answers. Was the couple's murder the result of a drug deal gone wrong? Did someone out there know that Ronald had a lot of drugs in his apartment so they decided to rob him? Investigators weren't so sure. But while they were combing through Ronald's past, trying to get any clues, they came upon an incident that happened the year before. A 24-year-old actress named Melanie Haller had accused Ronald of drugging her. Apparently, the actress had had an experience prior to this where she was raped at gunpoint by a famous producer named Roy Radden. He would later plead guilty to some of the charges against him, but he was never charged with rape. Melanie would hang out with Ronald at his apartment a few months later, and he claimed that she randomly started to freak out. 
she was allegedly reliving her past rape experience, so he gave her a narcotic to calm her down. Melanie would go to the hospital after this and tell doctors that Ronald drugged her, but Ronald was never charged with anything in this incident because he claimed to have gotten the narcotic from Melanie's purse, and the pills were prescribed to her. Melanie also accused another person of trying to drug her a few months later. The entire incident and ensuing report would be dropped after Melanie's mom came forward saying that her daughter suffers from delusions that everyone is trying to hurt her. Nothing ever came from this because people assumed that Melanie was lying. But when the media got a hold of this story, they really used it to push the narrative that Ronald was a wild drug dealer. Unfortunately, the media also used this drug dealer narrative to really drag Elizabeth's name through the dirt, despite her good reputation and spotless record. Elizabeth was now considered this bad girl because of her associations with Ronald. Word also got out that Ronald and Elizabeth were doing a photo shoot on the night of the murders, and the press used this to spread rumors that it was a pornography-type photo shoot. They even called Ronald's apartment a sex layer. But investigators found hundreds of photos in Ronald's apartment, and none of them were pornographic. The media also tried to claim that Elizabeth was into the drug scene herself. The mere fact that she was hanging out with the drug dealer gave them a good story. Rich college girl that led a double life of drugs and pornography and Elizabeth's loved ones were mortified that the tabloids were slandering her name. Her roommates in college would later say, quote, she was a very honest girl. She was not on drugs. There were never any signs. I don't even think she smoked. She was always concerned with good eating habits, with staying healthy, end quote. Many people in the School of Arts at Smith College would come forward and say that Elizabeth was a good girl with better than average grades and she was always wanting to do well with her life. And they said that these double life allegations were bogus. One of her professors that she knew well would say, quote, she was a very innocent and very receptive person. I could imagine that in her innocence and her interest in photography, she could be persuaded that things were not as they seemed, end quote. And that's most likely the case. Yes, Elizabeth knew that Ronald was a drug dealer, but she was naive and never could have imagined that she was in danger. But even if she was heavily into the drug scene, like Ronald, it still doesn't make their deaths any less serious. Neither Elizabeth nor Ronald deserve to die like that on that Halloween night. Detectives would go on to say that they believe somebody broke into the apartment that night wanting something from Ronald, whether it be drugs, money, whatever. But Ronald was supposed to be the only target. Elizabeth just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And unfortunately, investigators had reached a dead end in the case. There just wasn't enough evidence to find who killed them. But then they received a call that would change everything. Hey guys, I got sent a package the other day from Olive in June and I genuinely didn't know what to expect, but I am obsessed. Olive in June is a nail polish company and their nail polishes last seven plus days and do not chip. 
Olive and June's Manny system is the ultimate secret behind salon perfect nails at home. All in one, no guessing, no messy nails, no salon price tag. The products are super affordable. They come with everything you need to apply the polish, all the tools for the job. It's super easy and my ma- and my nails looked amazing. I will literally never use another nail polish after this one. My nails literally have never looked better. And I did them myself. No salon trip required. Getting beautiful salon perfect nails at home is now a dream come true with Olive in June. Your new nail life is here. Visit oliveandjune.com slash MIA and use code MIA for 20% off your first Manny system. This is an exclusive offer that only you get here. That's Olive and June, O-L-I-V-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash M-I-A. Code M-I-A for 20% off your first Manny system. Oliveandjune.com slash M-I-A, code M-I-A. Now back to the show. on Rikers Island. This island is huge and it holds a number of horrible prisoners, but something about what this inmate had to say raised the detective's curiosity. It was from an informant who claimed that he knew exactly how Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman were killed. He told detectives that a few weeks before the murders took place, his cellmate had predicted the entire thing. When detectives questioned him a little further, the informant said that his cellmate told him that he was part of a satanic cult and that the cult planned on performing a ritual near Greenwich Village on Halloween at a photographer's apartment. He even went further to say that the members of the cult were going to beat him, shoot him in the head, and burglarize the apartment, and that it was all part of the ritual. Detectives were shocked at this statement because that pretty much described the murders down to a T. And if this cult had came to the apartment to kill Ronald, they were obviously also going to have to kill Elizabeth as well. The informant also said that one of the reasons Ronald was chosen for this ritual was because Ronald had some evidence from a murder. Apparently, Ronald was a photographer that recorded a snuff film for this cult. If you don't know what a snuff film is, it is basically video footage, real video, of somebody being murdered. And because Ronald was a drug dealer, the cult was scared he would release the snuff film to investigators if he ever got caught for dealing cocaine. It's also interesting to note that the murders happened shortly after Ronald was accused of drugging Melanie Haller, and investigators were starting to think that maybe the cult killed him because of this incident. This story sounded all too familiar to investigators, and it seemed like the informant's story had some validity. Ronald's apartment was destroyed with all the furniture torn apart. Is it possible that the cult members were looking for the snuff film? In addition, Ronald and Elizabeth's IDs were taken on the night that they were murdered. This is common in ritual killings because the leaders of the cult usually want proof that the right people were killed at the right time. 
Also, you guys just have to imagine, this was early in the 1980s in New York City. The Jonestown Massacre had just happened a few years before, Son of Sam had wreaked havoc on the city in the recent past, and people were afraid. In addition, this was the time when the Satanic Panic really began to spread across America. During the Satanic Panic years, there were thousands of reports made across the country from concerned citizens who believed that their cities and towns were being overrun and infiltrated by dangerous, psychopathic Satanists. This panic would lead to a lot of false and coerced confessions from suspected Satanists, and reporters and authorities then echoed these confessions and convictions even if they were made under false pretense to the public, and the public was then convinced that there really were Satanists waiting in the dark to kill in their own communities. But what's interesting about these two murders is that, indeed, it does seem like there was some sort of cult involvement. The evidence points to these murders being the work of a group. And when investigators were told by the confidential informant that he believed that these two murders were cult-related, it all started to add up. When detectives interrogate the cellmate in question, he was even able to accurately describe Ronald's apartment. Now, this man obviously couldn't have committed the murder himself because he was in prison. But was it possible that he was still in connection to cult members that were still operating in New York City? And if the murders of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman weren't over drugs, and the informant story was true, then this means that investigators have a whole different problem on their hands. The story of a satanic cult is a lot more terrifying than a drug deal gone wrong. And to make matters worse, the cellmate in question the one who almost perfectly described the murders two weeks before they even happened was none other than David Berkowitz, or as you might know him, Son of Sam. Detectives were never able to confirm David Berkowitz's story because there wasn't enough evidence. And so, to this day, the murders of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman remain unsolved. And every Halloween since, the people of New York continue to ask the same question. Was the killing of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman the result of a drug deal gone wrong? Or was it something entirely more sinister? Every year on Halloween, the veil between the living and the dead is thin. Could it have been the perfect night for those who worship the Dark Lord to set out into the night to do his bidding? I guess that's something we'll never know. But make sure to listen to our episode next week as we take a deep, deep dive into the full story behind infamous New York serial killer Son of Sam and his deep alleged connections to this satanic cult. Trust us, Halloween isn't over yet. We're not even close to being out of the darkness. Hey everybody, it's Colin. And Courtney. Thank you again for listening to Murder in America, our little podcast. We thank you all so much, all the people who are out there listening. It's so awesome to have you guys out there appreciating what we do. And if you like our podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Also, thank you so much to all of our patrons who make all of this possible. We love you guys. Our new patrons for this week are Burke Smith, Alexis Solis, Ariel, Amanda Chavacat, Martin Anderson, Reagan Chance, 
Isabel, Nilda Rodriguez, Jacob McFellin, Austin, Morgan Ford, Allison Andrade, Angel Antigua, Tierney Traverse, Christy Andrews, Noel Ferg, Jana Karenko, and Caitlin. And also a happy birthday to our amazing patron, Sarah Martinez. Happy birthday, Sarah. Um, if you would like, you can support us on Patreon where we post these episodes ad-free and you can get a bunch of bonus content. We're posting October's bonus episode this week and an additional episode. Um, I wrote today's episode. Hope you guys liked it. You can follow me on Instagram at Court Shan. And if you don't know already, I'm the producer of the episodes. I occasionally write some, but Courtney's really the one that kind of kills it with the writing, so she's the one that's bringing this to life. But you can follow me at Colin Brown. You can also check out my YouTube channel, The Paranormal Files, if you like spooky stuff. In addition, we just released a three and a half hour long documentary about the crimes of Ed Gein, episode 26 of Murder in America. Uh, we visited Warden's Hardware Store where Bernice Warden was killed, their graves, and we investigated for paranormal activity the Washara County Jail, which is where Ed Gein was booked into jail, and we got to hold Ed Gein's knife, his guns. If you want to watch that video, go to The Paranormal Files on YouTube. It's the newest video, The Ghost of Gein. But anyways, thinking about all this, uh, it's the same old thing. It makes me, I think it makes everyone wonder, especially on Halloween when the veil is the thinnest and the dead can walk the earth. The dead don't talk. Or do they? Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween.